Friends, welcome to another episode of Making Disciples. My name is Chris Rogers and I am your host today. Welcome to our podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing John Mark Comer. John Mark leads a church in the US, uh, Bridgetown Church. Uh, fantastic speaker, fantastic teacher, written a whole bunch of books, but recently published The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Really good book. Reminds me of the writings of Dallas Willard, who I absolutely adore. So in this episode, we're going to be talking to him about why is our life going so fast? How do we slow it down? How do we centre it around Jesus rather than production and busyness? So I hope you find this podcast episode really helpful. My name is Chris. I'd love you to subscribe to this podcast, share this podcast, tell people about this podcast. It is the only way that more people will hear about it is if you choose to tell somebody about what you are listening to and watching today. So friends, welcome to Making Disciples. I'm so glad you're with us and I hope you find this interview with John Mark Comer as interesting as I did spending time with him. So here we go, John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hope. John Mark Comer, welcome again to Making Disciples. We absolutely loved it. The listeners loved it when you were last with us. So thank you so much for giving us some time today. How are you doing uh, with COVID and all of what the world is throwing at us? Well, first off, happy to be along. I uh, so enjoyed our chat, whatever that was, two years ago, yeah. however long ago it was. So enjoyed it. Love. I think we have a kindred spirit around discipleship and spiritual formation. I'm doing fine. I, um, my spirit is good. I just came down with shingles. Oh. So that's fun. Um, so, you know, I feel like I'm living in a Jerry Seinfeld you know, comedy special, you know, like pastor leading a church through a global pandemic where you can't meet in groups larger than two as, and your church is literally the ecclesia is a gathering of people. And now I come down with COVID. So, you know, what can I say? But I am learning a lot about what the mystics called holy uncertainty and how to um, detach at an emotional level from plans and outcomes and certainty and control. And I think God is doing a deep work of freedom and healing in my heart. But it's, a, it's very hard. It's a, you know, and we have it pretty good. Our home setup is very, we're not like in a studio apartment, you know, bleeding out our eyes with three kids. We're in a home. I have a little home office and I still have a job. So we're, um, we have nothing to complain about. We're very grateful. But like all of the world, this is, uh, this is doing great good in our spirit. And uh, we can't wait for it to end, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that it really has done is it's forced us, it's forced us to slow down. Yeah. Uh, which is what I want to, to talk to you about, really, is we are going way too fast. We're burning out and we know things are out of sync. W what went wrong? What brought us to this point, you know, pre-February? Uh, what brought us to this point of just burnout as a society? You know, how did we get there? Well, I mean, obviously that's like a murder mystery. And, you know, there's more than one answer to that. There's more than one kind of culprit. 
And so I think you have larger kind of philosophical and even, you know, quasi secular religious kind of issues. And then you have more technical, you know, issues on the kind of worldview side. I think, you know, I would kind of maybe go back. I mean, obviously you could go back to the garden of Eden and Genesis three and one way of reading that story, the temptation is as a temptation to transgress your limitations just you shall be like gods. Like this garden's not enough for you. Your humanity is not enough. Your place in the cosmos below the creator and above the creation is this intermediate. That's not enough. You have to transgress that and become more. And that primal kind of human temptation down through history that for sure you see an uptick in, in the enlightenment in kind of the early iteration of secularism where, you know, philosophers talk about the shift from creation to nature with kind of Darwin and even before Darwin this kind of view before that was a little bit more deterministic was the downside to it. That like the world is what the world is. We just have, we die, we get sick. Something like a disease comes along, we submit to God and we go to the grave or whatever. That world was really replaced by, you know, the hope of science, which of course originally came out of the Christian worldview, but there became this like idea that we could master the world. We could take control of nature. We could, transgress our limitations we could become what the enlightenment you know thinkers called masters of the universe and patrick denine who's an american political philosopher who's written i'm pretty apolitical but written the most interesting book i've read in years of political philosophy whether you're from the right or the left it's just an interesting read basically argues that the whole western world is built around this mm. kind of transgression of the limits of yeah. creation to nature and it looks different on the left and the right the left aims it at social and moral realities. So for example, gender fluidity, issues of sexuality, it would be like transgress your body, transgress your gender, transgress your role. And the right tends to aim it at issues of economics and environmentalism. Like, you know what I mean? Who cares about the environment or free market capitalism with no boundaries or whatever. But they actually share, he would argue that they're 80% the exact same in a hyper-individualistic, secular we transgress limitation so i think there's a larger world view that basically it there's almost an assumption for western people that you want to transgress all of your limitations that more is better you know what my therapist calls the gospel of upward mobility let's just more greater transgress beat back fight you know ignore our mortality our fragility our contingents mm. we're masters of the universe which the gift of COVID-19 is it's forcing the whole world, in particular the Western world, to confront its mortality yeah. and to realize just how contingent we are. And then on the technical side, there's all sorts of, you know, shifts. One would be urbanization. You know, obviously life in London, where you're at, or Portland, mm. where I'm at, is radically different than if we were farmers 100 years ago, you know, and all there was to do every day was farm and go to church on Sunday, you know. Wealth is another one, the, the, the rise of kind of standard of living, which for the most part is great, but with wealth comes more options, more distraction, more responsibilities, time drain, mental drain. And then of course, digital technology is like the nail in the coffin, Silicon Valley. And it's, it's business model that is designed to steal our attention, which is why a lot of people in COVID don't have any more time because the time has just disappeared down the black hole of Netflix or social media or Zoom or email, you know? So I think you have some kind of deeper like worldview, human condition issues where that go all the way back to Genesis, where we, we can't just accept our place in God's ordered cosmos and make peace with it and live joyfully with Jesus there. Mm -hmm. And then you have like almost some issues of 
urbanization and city living and money and middle class and up lifestyle and digital technology and the phone that all kind of conspire together to manipulate that human vulnerability to transgress our limitations. Mm. We're just aiming to control everything around us, aren't we, in whatever way we can. Yes, optimize. There's a big push to like optimize your life, you know? Yeah. And then we just end up sick in lots of spheres of our lives. And we've noticed we've been sick for a long time around creation care. Yeah. But, but really, we're just catching up with the fact that we're sick internally when it comes to just busyness and it's seen in anxiety and depression. And yeah, there's other reasons why we have anxiety and depression. It's not just busyness, but actually it is one of the symptoms. Uh, right. So we find ourselves in this place of being sick, we're busy, busy, overwhelmed. Uh, and Jesus, he does have this antidote to it. And in fact, uh, what you talk about, so you're, the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, um, you actually start with what is one of my favorite uh, message translations of scripture, which is where mm. Jesus talks about... Um, you pull it up here. Come to me, all that are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. If I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's right. one of those verses where you, you, you go, Ah, <sighs> uh, I know, you take yeah. a deep breath after you read it, you know? When, you know? when we read that line, my yoke is easy, That's, this is the antidote in here, but... What is the yoke? What is Jesus talking about that you talk about in the book? Well, okay, there's, there's two interpretations there, in all honesty. You know, the most common interpretation there is that yoke was a first century Jewish way of referring to a rabbi's set of teachings. And in Matthew's gospel, it's a, it's a way of referring back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. So in that interpretation, Jesus is saying, that if you take upon my kind of overall lifestyle in the kingdom, then you will find rest for your souls. The other interpretation that I don't think is at odds with it, I think maybe it's a both and, is if you read that, most people read that verse out of context, like uh, we just did and like I do in the book. But if you read it in the flow of Matthew's like narrative, right before Jesus is talking about secrets and how like there's secrets of the kingdom of God that are given to the children, but not to the world. And he's talking about how the father has revealed to the son. And so another interpretation is that the yoke is living in such a way that you participate in the inner life of the Trinity. Mm. And as you live through what Jesus later called abiding, just like participating in the inner life of the Trinitarian community of love, that we call God and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that you discover this gentle, easy, loving presence deep within you that is God himself, um, not in a Hindu way, but in a mm. Christian way of Christ in us, you know, and us in Christ. And, uh, and we find rest for our souls. And of course, the key there is it's not just rest for your bodies. You can get that from like Ambien and a good night's sleep. Mm. It's rest for your, for your souls, your whole person you can go on vacation you can sleep 10 hours a night you can do all the things and still be uptight and anxious and not have an identity and striving and perfectionistic and grasping for control but there's a rest for your souls 
that is available as we participate in the inner life of the Trinity and take on the overall lifestyle of mm. Jesus. Mm. I love, you know, I don't know if you come across Ray Vandalan. Yeah. He's just one of my, uh, he's one of my heroes. He's one of those I absolutely adore. And uh, yeah, his work around what a disciple is was uh, formative for our church. So good. And he talks about um, traditionally you would have two strong oxen pulling with the yoke um, and you wanted two strong oxen because they would plow in a straight line. It'd be perfect. But as oxen got older and they were weaker, you would partner them with a younger, stronger oxen. Uh, and mm. it would mean that the older one that was losing strength would have the predominant weight carried by the youth. But the, the, elder, the older one would kind of work with the youth. And I love that idea of my, Jesus and my yoke is easy. That idea that I'm the older burnt out oxen and yet Jesus, <laughs> the youth comes and walks with me taking the weight as we pull it together. And I love that wow. idea that you talked about because it really makes me go, um, yeah, that's not a job I want to do until Jesus pulls with me. Right. That really, that really, you know, I loved that in terms of where Christ is and, and that image. Right. The joke is easy because he's carrying yeah. it uh, with us. Um. So how do we do this? How do we walk with Christ? His yoke is easy. What do we need to put in place yeah. in life so we can do? Well, I think to move from metaphor to practice, my reading of that is what Jesus is calling his disciples to is to take on um, his overall lifestyle, what the gospel writers call his way or hadas in Greek can be translated way or path or road. And it was itself a word picture. I mean, it literally means like a road, yeah. but it was a word picture um, similar to how it is in English for like a way of life, a way of being. And it was language used um, after the Gospels by the early church for many centuries, later replaced by rule of life, uh, which, which for a while was synonymous with way of life by them in the monastic tradition until Benedict. And um, so a, a key idea for us at our church and in my work is that the way of Jesus is exactly what it sounds like. It's a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas that you believe in the mental kind of architecture of your mind that we call Bible and theology. And it's not just kind of a list of do's and don'ts or what we would call ethics. It is that 100%, but it's more, not less. It's also a way of life um, and a relational way of life, a, a, a way of life, a way of being in the world where you create space to participate in the inner life of the Trinity mm -hmm. or to, for a personal relationship with Jesus, as evangelicals would say, yeah. to relate to God. And at that point, you start to get really practical because then what it means to disciple or apprentice under Jesus is you read the Gospels incessantly and you pay close attention, not just to Jesus' teachings and the miracle stories, but to the, the stories about the details of Jesus' life. Like, you have to grapple with the fact that Jesus comes to us through the genre of biography, not theological essay. Mm. And if you think about a biography, are you a biography reader at all or documentary, biopic, yeah, watcher? Yeah, I mean, biographies. Yeah. I'm not a huge one. 
uh, it takes a special kind of person to give like 800 pages to a dead person, you know, reading uh, well, about I like, his, I like um, preschool I experience. Come, but uh, I don't know if you come across Adam Savage. That's my level yeah. of uh, biography. He's a prop maker and you, he, uh, he worked on episode two and three of Star Wars. That's my level of biography. Reader. Oh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> okay. Got it. Got it. That's great. Anyway, I mean, if you think about why people read a biography, you generally read the biography of a person that you're drawn to, either because they're a luminary or a pariah or just fascinating. And most of the time at an intuitive level, if it's somebody that's a luminary that you look up to or respect, you read it not just to know their story, but to know like what were the tiny little habits and ways of being that had a cumulative effect that made this phenomenal life. Mm. And then you intuitively pay attention and figure out what you can adopt in your own life. So, oh, Bill Gates, you know, has his read week where he turns everything, I'll do that. Or, oh, you know, so-and-so has two hours every morning where they just have think time. Okay, I'll do that. Or, oh, so-and-so went to this college. I should go to that college. Or, oh, so-and-so was into whatever. I'll get into whatever. And you, ad- you kind of just intuitively in- adapt it and transmute it kind of for your own, like, gender and personality and stage of life and where the economic world and the tragedy is that, that very few followers of Jesus read the Gospels that way. Mm. But they're biography. Yeah. So they're designed not just to pass along theological, they're theological, 100%, but they're not just designed to give us theories of the atonement. In fact, they don't even do very much of that. Mm. They give us the fact of the atonement. They are designed for us as apprentices to read about Jesus day in, day out life and emulate it, you know, with without without a legalistic thing. Like, how do I how do I work that out with my gender? I'm an extrovert, or I'm married, or I have little kids, or I'm a pastor, or I'm an engineer. So, you know, you read all these stories in the Gospels that are just about details. Very Mark chapter one. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went off to a solitary place and prayed. Yeah. Okay, that's not a miracle. That doesn't prove the divinity of Christ. It's not about atonement theory. That's not a teaching. It doesn't tell you how to live on an ethical level, but that's interesting. Jesus, after a long day of work, didn't like sleep in, have brunch and watch Netflix. He got up early and went somewhere to be alone. Wow. What would that look like for me as an apprentice of Jesus? How, how would I flesh that out? I have, I have a one-year-old. How would I do that? I'm in lockdown. How would I do that? You know? So I think that's, that's what we're getting at. Yeah, lifestyle. I recently had a, a guy come to faith and he said to me, Chris, how do I live as a Christian? And I said, I want you to go and read the Gospels. And I think there's 10 things that I see Jesus doing in the Gospels. And I want you to go and see if you can find out what they are. And it won't be uh, going to the loo or doing the washing up or washing. Yourself. Go and look, what Jesus, look at what Jesus does and just write down what those things are. And he came back with this list. He, he prayed uh, to the Father. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. Uh, he spoke truth to power and he kind of lists them, these, these things. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to work through those. And that's, that's what we'll do. That, if that's what we see Jesus do, then that's what we are going to do as well. Um, right. So we're just literally walking through those principles and saying, look. And, that's, and did you have a list of 10 before? I'd love to hear your list. Don't ask me to name them off the spot, but I, will, I can give you them. So I've, I've written it all up. But, um, uh, well... Do you want me to Google them? I've got them in my... Uh... Go for it. If you got it, I'd, well, I'd love yeah. to hear. You don't have to explain. I'd, I'd love to hear your bullet points. Uh, da, 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 da. This is where I get let down by my... Um, 
let's keep talking and I'll dig it up That's because great. Um, I've, I've, I've actually just written it all up so that I'm not going to forget them when somebody asks me. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get a tattoo or something on the forearm so they're just we know it's like Nicky Gumbel always says don't start a, don't start a list because you will always let yourself down at number six and then you'll be really embarrassed by the fact that uh, you can't remember something <laughs> um can I just ask you another question while I while I pull these up but yeah, um shoot. You, you can not even answer my question that's no I, well, I, I want to I want to pull it up now just to justify my 10 um what was it for you that started you on a journey of looking to, I need to make a shift in my life to put in a rule of life? You know, how did you start putting in some rules or guidelines in your life other than just looking at what the gospel said? You know, what was it for you that's helped you put in that rule of life? It may be an author that you've, you know, you've read or somebody you've been inspired by. Uh, yeah, I mean, short version, pain was what prompted it, you know, um, a sense of not just burnout and overwhelm and constant low-grade anxiety, but really a sense of um, plateau at the best and regression at the worst in my formation and growth into a person of love and joy and peace in the way of Jesus and some real hard kind of soul-searching. I think my initial introduction was through the work of Pete Scazzaro and mm. the Emotionally Healthy Church. That was book. kind of my, that was kind of, Dallas Willard was kind of my gateway drug, um, metaphoric, not literal, yeah. into spiritual formation. And uh, Scazzaro, I think, was my first kind of popular level introduction to rule of life. And then from there, into the historical sources and the background and workshopping it out, you know? Yeah. That book, actually, Emotionally Healthy Leadership, and then the other books he's written, I think, were probably the most helpful about 10 years ago for Becky and I, working out yes, exactly. how do we lead beautifully uh, out of all of our own brokenness. Um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, got... so funny. I read, um, I read forever ago, when I was 23 years old, I think, I read Emotionally Healthy Church, and I'd never heard of it. It was on like, this is the gosh, this is so many years ago. It was on Rob Bell's reading list. And I was like, emotionally healthy church. That sounds wacky. What is that? And I read it and I remember thinking, oh, this is great. I love it. And I agree with it. And it literally went in one ear, out the other. And over the next decade of my life, I did every single thing that he says not to do. <laughs> and then 10 years later into church planting a total emotional wreck, burnout, feeling like a failure as a leader. I went on a three-month sabbatical, and the first thing I did, did was reread The Emotionally Healthy Church. And at that point, I was ready to receive it, and it transformed my life. Wow. I just remember reading it and rereading it and rereading it slowly and deeply in Hawaii on this beach, you know, every day at this little gazebo I'd walk to by myself. And it, it was the beginning of a deep work of healing and a total re-architecture of biometrics for success. To, to be fair, anything that's read in Hawaii probably is going to do some good. <laughs> yeah, my, so I would say the 10 things that Jesus would do, he, he taught the Gospels, he taught Scripture, uh, he preached about the Kingdom of God, he was casting out demons. Uh, I talk about retreating to advance, so retreating in prayer to advance. You know, never yeah. see a breakthrough without first retreating. Uh, he passionately uh, healed the sick, uh, prophesied, 
Uh, he ate and drank with those in the margins. He challenged the religious institutions or the religious people. Uh, he fought for social justice and social action. And the, the last one I would call it, um, I don't know if it translates to the US, but we talk about speaking truth to power or speaking truth to government, that kind of concept, yeah. the king. So when he goes to Herod, um, so they're the 10 things. Um, yeah. Do you see these and you think, okay, well, how many of them do I actually do in my day-to-day -day life? If I was to remove eating, drinking, right. well, of what, what, you know, what is left from those, but. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about why this is important to you? Why is this a uh, whole topic of a healthy kingdom living, um, Jesus's yoke being easy opposed to burnout? What would you, why is it? Yeah, it's, it's really important to me at a personal level and a pastoral level and not for the reason that a lot of people think, not so that I can feel better. Um, you know, although I think that Jesus is compassionate and kind and is, you know, um, wants me to feel happy and at peace, not stressed out and exhausted all the time. But life is also hard. And he said we are to expect trouble and suffering and persecution in his name. So the point of emotional health is not emotional health. The point of an unhurried life is not so we can all just kind of relax and take a deep breath, though that's important. And we're holistic beings and we need that. Um, there's also suffering and hard work and perseverance and endurance that are called for that often my generation and even the one after me even more so need to hear about a little bit more. For me, it's important because hurry is incompatible with love mm. as well as with faith and with hope or with joy and with peace, the other kind of three major categories of the kingdom and Paul's theology in the New Testament. And uh, I think hurry is incompatible with all of it. You know, Willard, the whole book is built around Willard's claim that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And I think you can make a really strong case that hurry is a greater threat to our discipleship to Jesus and trusting God than secularism, than technology, than Darwinian materialism. Those are all legitimate mm -hmm. threats. But Hurry will often just drown out God and numb your soul to God without you even realizing that you've stopped becoming a follower of Jesus. And so for me at a personal level, it's the number one challenge I face I, in my discipleship to Jesus. I cannot be a man of prayer. I cannot be a man who is loving and patient and kind with my wife and my children and my closest relationships. And I cannot be a person who is creating space for hospitality, gospel, and work with other people outside the kingdom of God or in the church to be about the mission of Jesus when I'm hurried, over busy, and exhausted and distracted all of the time. So for me, it's almost like the entrance into a life of discipleship in the kingdom. If yeah. you, you know, I mean, Eugene Peterson once said that busy as an adjective should be to pastor what dishonest is to the noun of accountant, you know, something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, yet we all say I'm so busy. I think, I think busy in the unhealthy sense, not of a lot to do, but of mm. too much to do and not enough time. Um, I just think it speeds us up to this pace that is incongruent with Jesus life in the kingdom. And yeah. it takes us out of love, out of joy, out of peace, out of mission out of interpersonal relationships that are Christ-like. And so I really think that it is a deal breaker for discipleship and life in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And yeah. just as a pastor, 
my number one experience as a pastor who's really trying to work in the areas of spiritual formation and help people grow in their participation in the inner life of the Trinity, their transformation into people of love, joy, and peace, and them then partnering with the Trinity's work in the kingdom. I honestly think that busyness is like one of, if not the major problem, like the number one reason I see people not move forward is I'm sorry. I just don't have enough time. I'm just too busy. I do wonder how much it's purely because we think we find our worth in how oh, we work. Sure. We're concerned yes. you know, church is tight for money. Therefore I've got to prove my worth or I'll, I'll I'll be gone. So I need to work hard. I need to be quick. I need to show that I'm doing my stuff. And then you just end up laden with this pressure. And, and I think sometimes it's also, it's not that we are busy in the, in always in the sense of move, move. Sometimes it's purely that what we're carrying is heavy and, and, and what, so what we're carrying, it feels like we're overladen, but actually we're not, maybe not time-wise, but I just sense that sometimes I'm like, I'm heavy with what I'm carrying. What comes out of right. my mouth is I'm busy. But what I'm thinking, actually, I, today hasn't been the most busy of day. I'm just heavy. I'm heavy with what I'm yeah. carrying. And that's another... That's um, another, yep. And that's the rest for your souls thing, mm-hmm. not just your bodies. Ortberg, mm-hmm. John Ortberg said to me a couple of weeks ago, um, busyness is a condition of the body. Hurry is a condition of the soul. And I think what he was getting at was you can even order your life well and have time in your day. And that's a huge step in the right direction. Mm. But your soul can still be disintegrated and hurried and stressed and grasping for control and not able to let go and Mm. trust Jesus with deep confidence. And that creates an inner kind of sense of hurry, even in your thinking and your feeling, Mm. you know? Yeah. Just as we end, because we're going to run out of time, in the book you talk about what I describe in some ways is some of the antidotes of all of what we've been talking about. You talk about silence and solitude. Yeah. You talk about Sabbath resting. You talk about simplicity. And you talk about slowing. I love that they're all S's. That would make a great Baptist sermon. <laughs> um, silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, and slowing. Some of that sounds amazing. And some of that I go, I don't know how I could implement that into my life. How have you implemented each of those or all of that into your life? Yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of conversation there. I don't know how much time you have. Uh, you know, I mean, it depends on the one. And that, that's going to have to be, fo- there are best practices from 2000 years of church history that we would be fools not to draw from. There are expert teachers in recent memory around the world that have done in-depth work on how to follow Jesus' example in each of these four practices, all of which are all over the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. And then you have to flesh it out by your personality, your stories. It would be very different for a single person living alone. Silence and solitude would be pretty easy. Than for what if you have two little kids and you're in lockdown and you're in a one-bedroom apartment and you can't go outside? What does it look like for you? You know, obviously. So there's no one size fits all approach. You have to, you have to start where you're at, not where you should be. You have to be honest. You're not a monk, unless if you are a monk and uh, about your living situation, your personality, your maturity level, your stage of life. So for me, you know, there's daily, that's where my rule of life comes in. So something like silence and solitude, there's a daily practice like every morning, Uh, I spend an hour every single morning before I look at, you know, 
my phone's not there, phone's in another room, I don't look at it until several hours into my day, I have an analog alarm clock, wake up, nothing but just silent prayer with Jesus and scripture. That's my daily rhythm. And then I do a longer one on Sabbath, and then once a month, I do a day. That's my rhythm. That might sound extreme for other people, and the monks would scoff at it as that you're not, you're barely even following Jesus. Mm. So, you know, but again, that's, that's not for comparison, that's just for praxis. And same with things like simplicity would be, you know, again, there's no one size fits all. I limit my wardrobe to two to three outfits per season for kind of warm season and wet season, you know? So, um, and I kind of have a different outfit that I wear, you know, not each day, but like on a revolving basis. So today I'm wearing this outfit because it's Thursday and this is what (laughs) I wear on Thursday. And so that's my, you know, I eat the same, uh, I don't eat breakfast and I eat the same lunch every single day, but Sabbath. That's a great way to just simply say, I don't have to think about it. Don't have to order it. Don't have to say it's healthy. It's there. It's the same thing every single day. So there's just little things like that. These obviously aren't moral or biblical. They're just, you have to experiment with your own life to discern, you know, how do I follow Jesus' example? But all four of those practices are 110% straight out of the life of Jesus. Mm. And so to apprentice under Jesus, regardless of what your personality is, regardless of what your living situation or stage is, is at some point to adopt these postures, not in a legalistic way, but out of the inner, and it can't be, it can't be done like because it's the right thing to do. It has to be done out of, I want the easy yoke, the rest for my soul. I want to participate in the inner life of the Trinity through Jesus and by the Spirit. And so I want to adopt Jesus' lifestyle and apprentice under him how to live in the kingdom of God and become a person of faith and hope and love, you know? It's got to come from that deep place of desire. Um, There's discipline, but but before the discipline has to come a deep desire. Yeah. Thank you so much. We've run out of time completely. Uh, Of course. I over-talk all the time. I'm so No, it's great. If people want to track you down, uh, yes, there's the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, yeah. where else can they find you? You know, it's, it's the internet age, just John Mark Comer, C O M E R. I'm, you know, on Instagram and our podcast, I pastor a church called Bridgetown church in Portland, Oregon. And that's, uh, our podcast feed is where almost all of my teaching is. Yeah. John Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for sharing this with us. Thank Happy you. to be with you. I have deep love for your country and your city and we owe a deep debt to the legacy that you carry and we're so grateful for friendship with you and uh and may the force be with you yeah also with you